The Way Out Podcast, episode 106. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out Podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees, in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow the Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Have a question or comment about an upcoming or previous show? Call us right now. Area code 218-382-1960. We're going to start featuring your comments and questions on the podcast. Call us anytime, day or night and leave us a message on whatever is on your mind. Maybe it's a previous episode topic or something that you're struggling with in your own recovery. Call us at 218-382-1960 and leave the Way Out podcast hosts a message and we could feature it on our next episode. That's 218-382-1960. Help us recover out loud. The Way Out podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and this week, we've got a special interview with the fellow recovery podcaster, John, from Sober Speak. I never cease to be amazed at the power and spiritual truth that comes through each and every recovery journey, and John is no exception to this rule. John's story is marked by profound turnarounds in the most unlikely situations, especially his relationship with his mother a woman whom suffered mightily for many years from a mental health perspective. John's story is one of pain and struggle transmuted into recovery and service, and you won't want to miss a minute. Listen up. John, welcome to the Way Out Podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to take some time with us and share your experience, strength, and hope. I'm uniquely interested in this story, John, because you're a fellow recovery podcaster. So I want you to start out by introducing yourself to the Way Out podcast audience and just give uh, give us a little sense of who you are and you know, we'll we'll then dive a little bit into your into your story. You got it. Thanks for having me, Charlie. By the way, I'm a fan of your show. I listen to it. You and your two cohorts that I hear uh, discussing various topics, kind of taking deep dives on those uh, topics, if you will. But my name is John, John M. Uh, I am an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, May 29th, uh, 19. 
89, by the grace of God. Uh, and, um, um, you know, uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, adventure of becoming a, quote, podcaster here uh, really occurred for me as a kind of an interesting story. Back last uh, December, December of uh, 2017, now the uh, me and my wife were, uh, she's in the program as well. She's about 24, I believe you're sober now. Me and my wife were at a, um, uh, they call them holiday parties, Christmas party, whatever you want to call it. Now, uh, we were at a holiday party and uh, we were talking to a friend of mine there. His name is uh, Alex, Alex Z. And uh, Alex is one of these guys that sits in the back of uh, the room and, uh, uh, he's, you know, he's got great sobriety, but whenever you call on him, he, he doesn't really, he just doesn't like to share that much is really what it comes down to. And even when he does share, uh, it is, uh, uh, very measured. Uh, in fact, I was in a meeting with him today and, and he passed. <laughs> so, so I was able to, uh, uh, get, so me and my wife were talking to Alex and Alex is from, uh, uh, Iran. He has a Muslim background and, uh, I've always been curious about Alex and how he got into the program. And so we started talking to Alex and it was, uh, as he started sharing his story, we found out, I mean, he was, uh, he said that he is, uh, uh, he, he, he grew up in Iran uh, and it was back w- during the time of the Shah of Iran and the American hostages, for those of you who remember that situation. And, and his father uh, had to kind of um, uh, make this entire ruse to escape from the country, to get the entire country out to Germany. And he had to pay a lot of money in order to do it. And it was like a, really like a James Bond type of uh, an adventure. So he got them out of the country, then they got out of the country, and then they came from Germany to the United States. And, uh, you know, in Iran, he was telling me this, that uh, they don't, you know, alcohol is illegal. So they don't have Alcoholics Anonymous, but they had, believe it or not, Narcotics Anonymous because a lot of the people get hooked on the opium. And so so when he got over to uh, uh, Los Angeles, uh, they read the quote, what he called the Persian version of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It's written in Farsi. And so anyway, he was going through this entire story. And on the way home, me and my wife looked at each other. We thought, man, this should be a movie. Yeah. And uh, I just couldn't let it go. Then like two or three nights later, I was sitting there, uh, I was laying in bed, and uh, I was thinking about how could we get Alex's story out there to the public? I mean, he's just, you know, he's one of these guys that's really kind of, uh, like I said, he's fairly reserved. And so all of a sudden, it came into my head, I went, podcast? Wait a second, I know nothing about podcasts. What Interviews? I know nothing about interviews, and, and I could not let it go. And I approached my wife like the next couple of over the next couple of days, and I said, "Listen, I don't know much about a podcast, but if I were able to record Alex, would you be able to get his story up on a web? Could you create me a website?" And she's technical in that respect, and she said, "Yeah, I'd be more than happy to." So. She created that, and I, I actually, Alex is, believe it or not, number two, my second episode. I had this other guy that I just grabbed out of the meeting one day. He was visiting from Mumbai. We called him Mumbai Mike, and I said, hey, I'm, I've got this little project. Uh, would you mind coming over? He said, sure. 
I set my blue Yeti down in front of him and we did a recording and uh, the rest is, and then I, I kept thinking, okay, this is just going to be a couple of these, right? I mean, you know, you're really not going to go on with this, John. And uh, so, last words, John. <laughs> right. <Famous> and, last words. <laughs> and then it turned out I was, uh, I was hooked. Uh, now we've got like about 45 or so episodes. I mean, I'm way behind you. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Charlie wannabe, but uh, I'm, I'm getting there. John, I think it's amazing that the impetus of your wanting to start a podcast really stemmed out of this desire to share a story that until then had been confined in the four walls of a 12-step recovery room. And the thought that really burdened you and wouldn't leave you was, how do I get this story out? into the general public and how do I get this story out for everyone to hear do you attribute that to your higher power do you think that was divine providence do you feel like you were called to do this yeah, I do. I definitely did. I mean, I remember going through the process and think, you know, I have this saying in life uh, to where I say, you know, move toward the light, you know, move toward the life, move toward the energy. And I could tell every time I took a step in that direction, even though, uh, as you know, uh, doing a podcast is not as easy as uh, as it seems. Uh, you know, there's a there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. And uh, but I kept moving through it, and uh, I kept running into obstacles. But I knew that I was doing the right thing, and that uh, uh, ultimately this was like like you said a calling. And I say at the beginning of my podcast, and what I what I finally kind of was able to crystallize in my brain, the the idea or the primary purpose for my podcast was give to give a platform for the amazing stories of recovery all around us and they are plentiful uh but sometimes we just you know we we know those people in our local groups but but their 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 ideas and their their messages and their stories uh, are not distributed to uh, the rest of, uh, you know, the even the county, much less the world. And so that's why I love podcasting. I think it's a, it's a great tool. No doubt about it. And I love the idea that you're giving a platform for these stories because, you know, one of the first things that I connected with when I first came into the 12-step rooms of recovery and, you know, the recovery program of choice for me was Alcoholics Anonymous – was hearing other people's stories and finding myself in them. <laughs> and I would find myself thinking, I thought like that person thought. I felt like that person felt. I did what they did. And they recovered. So maybe... If I do what they're doing now and I follow their path in recovery, maybe I can recover too. That's right. 
Yeah, it was nice to be able to say, uh, um, uh, I'm not the only one that feels this way. And, you know, you hear this a lot, but it really rang, it rang true for you, obviously. It rang true for me. Um, you think you're alone out there. You think you're the only one going through all this, you know, just misery. Um, but there are others. And, uh, you know, for once, once in my life, Charlie, I was able to step back from the situation and say, you know how we always have this struggle of what are we here for? Well, I knew after I got to Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, and my two is a story of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but I knew that I could share with other people either one-on-one or at group level, uh, my experience, strength, and hope, and hope that they can maybe get some sort of tidbit uh, out of what I would share. So let's dig into that experience, strength, and hope. Let's talk a little bit about, about what it was like for you. When is the first time you drank, and how did that make you feel when you drank? If your story is a story of alcohol, mine was too... Uh, Let's, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, your, your first experience, uh, with alcohol. Maybe it's, maybe it's a story that starts before alcohol. You know, I, I found out that, you know, in retrospect, that alcohol was my solution, right? <laughs> to other things, many other things that were going on inside of this, uh, this brain of mine, right? So where does it begin for you, John? Well, you know, really from in terms of alcohol and the first time I ever drank, I mean, I think I was I was either 16 or 17 years old. I went to a party with some friends and uh, I had um, uh, I never drank before and uh, beer and all and other things were there. And I got a hold of it and I just started guzzling and uh, I blacked out. And, uh, I, you know, I can remember toward the end of that night, uh, I, I didn't have my driver's license. And I didn't have a car, but I wanted to drive everybody home. Isn't it strange how alcoholics are just drawn to those automobiles? Sad but true. And uh, so, uh, you know, and, and from that, I mean, I remember that. And I can still remember sitting at, you know, we all got fake IDs and we're that age and it wasn't that big of a deal then. Uh, you know, you could have, you could... You could be a different race than somebody on that license. They would let you in. You know, they 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 just wanted to have something that had a particular date on it. And I would be sitting in these bars uh, with these uh, various people. And uh, even I remember at 17 years old, uh, my choice was not really to whether I was going to drink. That well, my choice was one or two things. Either I was going to start drinking, and I knew I was going to get just blown away. Uh, or I was going to sit there and I was going to have nothing for the night, you know. And and, and I didn't know that that was a sign of alcoholism, if you will. Um, another thing that uh, uh, so moderation wasn't really something that existed for you even from the beginning. Not from the beginning. In fact, there's a line in the book that says, you know, we drank essentially because we like the effect produced mm -hmm. by alcohol. Um, I can remember I was uh, after I gotten sober, probably five years sober at the time. I was in my office one day. I was doing some work and a lady came up to me and she said, uh, hey, uh, John, uh, what are you getting there? Is that a, a caffeinated or decaffeinated coffee? And I said, well, I'll tell you this, Allison, I drink coffee essentially because I like the effect produced by caffeine. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't even understand. You know, I don't understand non-alcoholic beer. I don't understand, you know, decaffeinated coffee. Um, and uh, it, it just it, it's just how I was. And I was a uh, coming up uh, through school. Uh, I was, uh, and just into my early twenties, uh, I was definitely a, uh, a vandal and a thief. I, I just, uh, I would steal anything that wasn't tied down. In fact, I still drive down the street with my wife sometimes and I'll see things that are out on people's porches or that they left in the yard or whatever. And I'll say, Hey, just out of curiosity, uh, do you think about going up on that porch and taking that item and putting it in your trunk? And she's like, no, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Me, me, me neither. Me neither. I was, I was just wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, and I was uh, definitely a vandal. Uh, I liked. Uh, I just like destroying things. And you know, Charlie, if you go back a little bit here, uh, you, you know, there's uh, there's so much that has happened to me in sobriety, but it's hard for me to talk about my sobriety without talking about my relationship with my mother. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my parents were married. Uh, my, my mom was, uh, uh, she had an eighth grade education. She was from Scotland. She was married to my father. Uh, and he met her when they were over in Scotland. Uh, he was in the uh, Air Force, you know, kind of a common story back then. They, they came back over here, moved back over here. And I was born in uh, uh, Bangor, Maine. Uh, I was an Air Force brat for the first six years of my life. Then my parents got divorced. Um, around 10, 11, 12, um, all of a sudden I started noticing some, uh, I guess what you would call interesting behavior with my mother. It was just her and I had no brothers and sisters. Uh, and when I go through this story, I'm not, I just want to let you know that I realized my mom was doing the best she could with what she had. But all of a sudden I noticed that she would go up to a door, go up to the gas stove and she would check to see if it was off and she would go check. Check, check, check. And this would go on for probably 50, 60 times. Uh, and it would go, and she would do the same thing on the locks out on our door and uh, on, on our car. And uh, what it ended up being, uh, which I didn't know at the time, I just thought it was very strange. She had true obsessive concern obsessive compulsive disorder we would sit down and uh, we would have conversations on a consistent basis she would tell me about how she was thinking about committing suicide and about how she could not get these words out of her head and there were words like death that would just keep running through her head and running through her head and running through her head and she couldn't stop them and then when i got to be more of a teenager 11 or 12 uh, she definitely um uh, it started to go downhill, so to speak, and she, did, she not only had that, she had some sort of form of schizophrenia, uh, and then she had um, uh, anorexia. And when I don't know if there are actually degrees, if you will, of anorexia, but whatever she had, she had a bad, she would get down into the 70s sometimes, 70 pounds, and uh, she would go out to the pool, she would put her little bikini on, and... Uh, um, I knew it looked strange. Everybody else knew it looked strange, but it was the look she was going for. She also had, uh, she would uh, shave her head, uh, and it was like she would dye her hair jet black. And uh, she'd do like a number two razor on her on her hair, and she like that's a, and she would dye it black, and she wore all black clothing, and then she wore black makeup, and so. 
I was growing up with that. So, and the only reason I say that is because when you throw into the mix somebody like myself who was alcoholic, uh, who had all those characteristics, it's almost like a perfect storm. Now, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic or not. I know a guy that um, I'm good friends with, and he always says, uh, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but when I started to drink, an alcoholic was born. Mm. Mm. John, you know, one of the things that strikes me so fundamentally as you share that piece of your journey is that, you know, this experience that you had growing up with a mother with debilitating mental illness in a time when mental illness wasn't even spoken of. Not at all. Let alone, um, you know, uh, uh, well-treated and well-managed, right? Must have had such a profound impact on on your uh, ability. Your dad's not in the picture. Mom um, I, um, ha- is 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 suffering from debilitating uh, mental illness and i love the program piece of hey you know she's doing the best she can can with what she has with which candidly didn't sound like very much at the time and for all intents and purposes it sounds like perhaps you know, that was gasoline on an already very, 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 very dry tinder and kindling that already existed inside of you. Good way to put it. Yep. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, now all of this is retrospect, right? Um, But here's what I know is that when I was uh, in a uh, really up through middle school in the first couple of years of high school, I was, uh, I don't know, I was fairly withdrawn. But I tell you what, as soon as I started drinking, I became a very popular guy within the school. Uh, you know, and I could fit in with any crowd at any time. And so, you know, you have somebody who's going through something like this at home and then you bring in alcohol to the picture. And all I wanted to do was leave the house and get messed up. And, and, you know, my mom, for her, I was the only thing, only vestige of hope, only, um, uh, sense of sanity that she had is she never wanted me going uh, outside the house. So we had a lot of these times where she would stand in front of the door and say, you're going nowhere. And, you know, we'd be shoving back and forth and all this sort of stuff because I was going out. And, uh, you know, um, it was really just a sad situation. Um, but it sounds like, though, John, that really very quickly or maybe immediately that alcohol became a solution for you because because alcohol was doing for you what you could not do for yourself. Yes, that is spot on. Uh, and once again, it's all retrospect. I didn't look at it that way at the time. Um, but all of a sudden, you know. Um, I became somebody that I wanted to become. I was popular with uh, uh, girls. I was popular with guys. I was, uh, uh, you know, I truly was the guy at the party. That I mean, I literally had lampshades on my head at parties. Uh, and, you know, I could go in there and make a lot of jokes and do a lot of impersonations when I went to the parties. And uh, I just, uh, it, it, it just helped me get along. 
You liked what alcohol helped you become. For sure. I have known people before that said they didn't have any fun when they were drinking. I'm like, well, hell, if you go back out again, why don't you come give me? I'll show you. <laughs> because <laughs> You ain't doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be at least some fun there. But, That's uh, right. Yeah, so yeah. It, it worked until me, it didn't. John, as things progressed for you, you know, at what point were there points as this progressed for you that, you know, gave you sort of moments of, you know, uh, clarity, like perhaps that perhaps I don't have a handle on this. Perhaps this is, this is, this is, uh, um, um, uh, you know, I had these scared straight moments. Did you have those? Yeah, that probably went on. Uh, I'd say about uh, uh, eight, ten years later. Uh, you know, I started to. Uh, and by the way, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I out of respect for the traditions, I uh, pr- for the most part don't share about my uh, uh, pretty severe drug use and dealing and all that sort of stuff. But um, I, um, uh, I am sure that is what um, uh, accelerated my uh, addiction for sure uh, I, it really uh, you know because you use all these sorts of drugs to kind of go up and then alcohol would always bring me back down and I'd have tons of alcohol to get me there um, but there were times years later where I remember thinking for sure that uh, uh, there's something not right in fact we used to make jokes about it we you know it's interesting Charlie I could come in to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and we used to make jokes about being alcoholic. In fact, there was a couple of, I know you're up in Minnesota, there was a couple of uh, uh, Minnesota quarterbacks at the time that were both in alcohol treatment programs. And this was, you know, back before that was not as, as commonplace as it was. And we always used to say, we're going to root for the Minnesota Vikings because they have two alcoholic quarterbacks. And it was just... And I think that was Wade Wilson and yeah. Tommy Kramer, if I recall. Yep, yep, yep. That, that's, that's it. That's it exactly. And they were both in treatment at the same that's time. Right. And right. so so we made, you know, it was like a joke, you know. Uh, I, I could say I was an alcoholic, but what I could not say and what really got stuck in my craw is I could not say I was powerless over alcohol. There was a major difference for that with that for me for whatever reason. Uh, in fact, there are people who say that you must do that first step 100% before you go on to the other steps. And I think that makes reference to it in the 12 and 12 somewhere. But I can tell you that for sure that I really did not take the first step fully, if you will, until I went through the fourth and fifth step and was able to see all of this stuff in writing and go, oh my goodness, this is completely insane. What are you thinking, John? Uh, doubt, John, and I, th- I love that you bring this sort of surrender piece up in terms of, you know, I can't just admit or confess, you know, right, that I'm an alcoholic, I could do that among certain company for years, right? I wasn't going to admit it to everybody, that's for sure. But among select companies, I certainly was willing to admit that I was an alcoholic. What I wasn't willing to do was surrender my will, right, was to wave the white flag and 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 submit that i i of myself cannot cannot manage this mm-hmm. i of myself do not have 
what it takes. I have tried over and over and over, and I do not have the ability to be able to uh, manage my disease. So let's take take a little bit step back and let us talk a little bit about, you know, how did you get to a point where you were willing to, for all intents and purposes, surrender to yeah. um, and begin to recover? Yeah, you know, and, and I've been asked that different times and different ways uh, throughout the years, uh, both by people in Alcoholics Anonymous and people outside of the program. And I don't know if I have a, a succinct answer for that. All I know is I kept trying. So I went to my first meeting, actually, in 1986. Um, and I rem- I know it was near Halloween, so it must have been near this time of year because uh, – um, I was there for, I, I got sober for like a day or two, three days, four days. And then I went to a Halloween party and I thought, wow, you know what? It is time to celebrate. I cannot believe I stayed three days sober because I was one of these guys who was a daily drinker mm-hmm. and, uh, went out, celebrated, uh, and, uh, you know, here's the thing, Charlie, always, every time in the back of my head, the voice that used to go through my head was I would say to myself, and this happened from 1986 to 1989, I kept saying, just one more night of drinking and then I will start over tomorrow. Mm. And I really meant that every time. I wasn't being insincere about it, but as you know and as I know, it's never that clean. Uh, I would usually come back in with my tail between my legs sometimes it was a week later sometimes it was a couple of months later sometimes it turned out to be a year later um but i i always thought that i could get away with in other words it'd be like uh you know well hey listen she sure is pretty and she wants me to go out tonight you know or i just want to go to this one party here and then i'll start over or hey just get me through july 4th or my birthday or whatever would just let me i'm too young right just let me have one more night of fun but it was never that clean when i came uh coming back in and i i, I regretted it every time how old were you when you started this? You said, you know, sort of 86 to 89. How old were you when you started this process of, you know, I, I, I need to quit or I need to, I need to stop for a while or I need to, I, I need to get sober or you're contemplating this and you, and you're really in that, really starting that knockdown drag out with your disease, right? You know, there's that period of time, it sounds like, where you really had a knockdown drag out. Right. How old were you? And what was the impetus? Was it was it a relationship? Was it you know, was it was it something inside of you that was causing you to to contemplate this? Yeah, good point. Uh, so I think I was around, and I may be a year or two off on these things, but like right around 25 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and there was a couple of things. Number one, I saw this guy on, well, okay, there's three things actually. Number one, when I was drunk real, really heavy one night, I called, uh, I was in my little apartment, uh, and I called, uh, you know, and this is kind of a lesson for the people uh, who have. Uh, who were younger there's these actually things we had called phones on the desk you'd have to pick them up and then you'd have to actually push the buttons right 
Uh-huh. And uh, I would ca- I called into the Dallas Intergroup, and there was this guy, this gentleman, who answered the phone. And I still don't know who this is today, but he, he, we, we talked for a while. You know, I was lit, and the only thing that I remember about that conversation is him saying the only requirement for membership, John, is a desire to quit drinking. Mm. And I had no idea that was the third tradition. I, 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 you know, all I knew is that rang with me, and I go, "Well, I have that. I have a desire to quit drinking." And then I was watching TV one night, and I actually saw. Do you know who Chris Mullen is, by chance? I do not. Okay, Chris Mullen is a he's a uh, he's a basketball player. He used to play for the Golden State Warriors, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think he's actually their coach or something now. But anyway, he was on the television. Now I know actually he was doing probably what. He shouldn't have been doing well I, I don't know i don't remember exactly how he phrased it but he talked about reading this book and about how this book had helped him and about how some program had helped him and i couldn't put two and two together at the time but then i had a uh, there was the uh, somebody that i was uh, going out with at the time and i took her to treatment she called me the night before she was going to treatment and we got blasted so anyway, I took her to treatment and she called me and she said, hey, I'm reading this book inside this treatment center while I'm here and I'm thinking about you because it's called We Agnostics. She knew I was an agnostic and I, at first I just thought, hey, well, I'm glad you're thinking of me, right? That's great. Right. I had no idea that I, I, I thought there was a book about agnosticism within the, the rooms and then she told me a little bit about it after she got out. And so with all those three things, somehow I knew or I caught wind of Alcoholics Anonymous and I looked it up in the phone book and I went to that first meeting in 1986 and uh, of course I, I got cured and never uh, looked back again. Just kidding. right this week's recovery revealed segment is brought to you by all recovery rings and all recovery rings.com would you like a medallion or coin from your favorite recovery program hand forged into a beautiful ring go to all recovery rings.com and choose from over 15 stunning styles all hand forged by expert craftsmen What are you waiting for? Do like I did and get your very own recovery ring today. We'll be right back with the second half of my conversation with John as we pause for this week's edition of Recovery Revealed, a chance to take a closer look at this life in recovery. I spent the better part of 20 plus years feeling and acting apart from this world and the people I happen to interact with and even live with. In recovery speak, a close relative of this condition is referred to as terminal uniqueness, a topic we covered in a recent episode on this very podcast. Being a part of something requires a myriad of emotional risks and mental gymnastics I simply wasn't willing to undertake for most of my adult life. Perhaps the most frightening aspect of this prospect was the process of being vulnerable and honest with people I didn't really know inside the rooms of 12-step recovery organizations. I was scared shitless that you all would reject me, that if I told you how messed up I was, if I told you how awful I felt, if I shared the twisted things that went on inside my head, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. You would think I was a complete freak and shun me. 
because that's how I thought of myself. I sat in these rooms and realized that others were being honest and sharing about their struggles, their fears, their insecurities, and their addictions, and it seemed to help them. They spoke of the process of sharing honestly and authentically stripped the power from these feelings and allowed others to relate and rally around them to support them as they moved through these trials and tribulations. I started to feel less alone because they felt like I felt, thought like I thought, and had done what I had done. I too began to be completely honest with these like-minded folks and began to feel more and more a part of and less and less apart from this world, which until this point had far too often felt cold and unwelcoming. Somehow, I found within me the willingness to take the leap into uncharted territory. And what I ultimately found was a whole new world I had never really been a part of up to that point. A supportive, welcoming world that offered hope and at last, a way out. Now back to the second half of my conversation with John. Listen up. Don't forget the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for being a part of the so, way out. That's where what, we share that's stories what really from people kind of just got like me you in. I guess who those would be the, the things that were the and impetus. And, you know, and you if you would like to reach out to the show, out, right? you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, and I love this. .com. I love or this. drop your host a friendly because email at share at You started taking a series of actions before you even really truly believed in your heart of hearts and podcast garden. If you were someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will. Intro, recovery, revealed, and outro music, courtesy of Ben Sound Music. Step one, and you know, until you fully concede to your innermost self that you are indeed an alcoholic, you know, real recovery isn't going to take hold you know you did it a little backwards um and it worked for you and i think and I, and backwards is not the right way you did it anyway you went through the action the program of action anyway and then your mind followed suit and I can relate to that because much of my recovery has been marked by taking a series of actions that I wasn't sure how would how they would help me when I was taking them. And then my mind and my spirit followed suit afterward. Can you relate to that through your recovery? I can. I always tell my kids, uh, I said, you know, 80 to 90 percent of life is just showing up. Because if you don't show up, you don't know what's happening. Uh, you may uh, you may miss the miracle. And uh, the one thing, in fact, I, I'll tell you this: uh, 
the only thing that I have done, I would say correct, if you will, on a consistent basis all throughout sobriety, is I have maintained my meeting attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize, you know, when you hear people all the time say, you, you know, the meetings aren't the program and, and all that stuff, and, and, I, and I get that. But if I'm not going to meetings, I'm not going to work the steps. And, and if I'm not going to meetings, I'm not going to have that sense of fellowship. And so for me, the meetings are the impetus of it just showing up. Even when I do things at a, uh, you know, I, I have a church that I go to over here, you know, and, uh, you know, half the battle is just, you know, you show up and uh, there's hardly ever a time at church or meetings or whatever that, uh um, uh, you know, that I wish that I had not gone. Uh, I always reap the benefits of that when I show up. You know, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, I agree that in in that, you know, I was sober for a year on, you know, wall steps and fellowship and that um, uh, that wasn't enough. I needed to work the steps and working the steps had made all the difference for me. Mm-hmm. That program of action made all the difference for me. But the problem for me, John, this alcoholic, if I, if I, if I think it's okay to stop going to meetings, that I forget what the solution is. Okay. And worse yet, um, Chuck, who's my, you know, the disease sitting on my shoulder starts barking in my ear. Okay. And he says, Hey, you missed two meetings in a row. And guess what? You're fine. Nothing bad happened. Hell, you even stopped praying a few days ago. And guess what? Nothing bad happened. Hey, you even were at the liquor store the other day and you walked out without buying any. You know, you, and it's a very small change for me, John. But my mentality changes from um, knowing that um, uh, my recovery is because of the power greater than myself that I that I uh, connect with and staying connected to my recovery community. Okay? That gives me the requisite power to stay sober one more day. Not me, but my higher power and my recovery community. But... A, a small change in my logic or my line of thinking will say, "No, actually, you did this all by yourself, Charlie." <laughs> you know, you're right. Can you relate to that? <laughs> I can. I like that you have the. Uh, you've named it. His guy. His name is Chuck. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. He's a he's a convincing son of a bitch. If it's just me and Chuck for too long. You know, I don't stand a chance. I had a, a friend of mine. I was at a meeting actually earlier today. Uh, his name is Chris, uh, Chris Yu. And uh, he was talking about his ego and how about his ego is like a little uh, five-year-old kid. You know, it's going to be there. You just got to kind of redirect it and, you know, kind of make sure you tamper it, <laughs> tamp it down and make it. sure you talk to it and yeah. say, hey, you know. <laughs> I understand how you're thinking. As you work through the program of recovery as prescribed in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, how did sobriety, what was sobriety like for you? You've been sober for for a a few 24 hours uh, consecutively, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What has sobriety been like for you over this period of time? 
Well, there's a couple of different things. You know, how do you how do you sum up you know that amount of time and and just uh, uh, you know a small podcast? But I will tell you that a couple things that come to mind. Uh, number one, I remember after I did the fifth step, uh, this was kind of a revelation for me. Uh, after I did the fifth step, I used to have all these little movies that went on in my head of uh, places where I had been and in positions where I should not have been uh, and uh, just, you know, seedy places in the whole nine yards. Uh, and uh, those used to call, in fact, they used to cause me real issues because, Charlie, I would, I started to develop like a little, uh, I guess what you would call a tick, almost like Tourette syndrome. Anytime those images would come into my head, I would just get this you know, this tick to where my head would just, you know, uh, it was like a nervous twitch. And these things started to happen on a consistent basis. And it was coming up much more often than it should at inopportune times, maybe when I was in a work situation. Uh, and uh, it was just getting to be a little out of hand. And uh, I remember doing that fist step. And, you know, this is why you go through the processes. It, these things are different for everybody. And I didn't know really what to expect. These are what you call unintended consequences. After I'd gone through that fist step, I noticed like a month or two later, all of a sudden, that little twitch and those movies coming into my head had just disappeared. Mm. And and so I didn't get into AA thinking, I want the movies to disappear. I want the twitch to disappear. I just knew that I wanted to be more comfortable within my own skin. And that's one of the things that happened that just kind of, I was like, oh, wow, this is something I wasn't expecting. What a tremendous gift of recovery that you received early on, right? That, you know, you explained it as an unintended consequence of, you know, working through these this this program of action in the form of 12 steps right and also being able to realize that you know um, when we uh, do this process of you know uh, cleaning house and 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 uh, uh, making uh, amends and you know, um, this process is, a, is, is such a cleansing process, right? But it removes all of these blocks that we have, right? Spiritually, right? And allows us to really be able to connect to our fellow man and the God of our understanding in a way that, that we never had been able to do before, right? That's right. It clears it all out, Charlie. And let me go back to that mom of mine that I was telling you about. So I got sober, like I said, in my late 20s, and um, uh, I went up, and by the way, like I said, I was in and out, and then I got this sponsor that I still have today. Uh, I tell him he's a temporary sponsor, even though it's been 29 <laughs> years. <laughs> I say, I think I'm just... I'm, humble. Right? right, right, exactly. I don't want him to get too comfortable with me, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, but he got, he got a hold of me, and he said, oh, by the way, John, have you ever done the steps? And I was like... I could have had a VA, right? I, I didn't even think of that, you know? And so <laughs> he took me through the steps. And since that time, I've not had to have a drink. So I was probably, and we got on it, right? We didn't do any first step, first year kind of thing. You know, we were, he said, you have your four step done by next week and we'll talk about it and so on and so forth. And we kept, we, we got through those steps r rather rapidly. 
uh, at least for the first time. And um, um, and then I went up to him one day. I said, I think I want to go make amends to my mom. And he knew the whole story. We had not seen each other in three years at that point. So I knew where she lived in the Dallas area. And by this time, I knew because my friends would see her walking on the street. She had become somewhat of a, I guess what you would call a bag lady. Uh, she still looked the exact same way. She would walk in through the streets. She would go in and out of these various stores. And uh, I went to go find her. And lo and behold, I did. I saw her walking in the streets. And I got out of my car. I ran up behind her. Um, I yelled for her, said, hey, mom. She turned around. She did not look at me. We were probably, I don't know, 20 yards apart or something like that. And um, I was calling for her. And she looked around. She uh, took her a second to recognize me. She didn't at first. And then she finally said, I hate you. Get out of my life. I never want to see you again. And she, she turned on her heels and she walked away. And so I had this whole thing in my head about what type of amends I was going to make to her, what the speech was going to look like, and it didn't work out, as you can see. And so I went back to my sponsor. He said, listen, she's emotionally unavailable. You need to get on with your life. So I did. I went back to school. I got my degree, and now I need to fast forward you about two and a half years later. Um. In my family, nobody had ever graduated from college, and uh, I was very uh, uh, proud of that at the time, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a major accomplishment. And so I had these announcements in my car, uh, these graduation announcements, and I was driving down the highway, it's called LBJ here in the Dallas, Texas area, and I knew... Uh, and all of a sudden, I was just, you know, one of those intuitive thoughts hit you. I wasn't expecting this, wasn't thinking about it, hadn't even been planning it. And all of a sudden, it comes up in my head and it goes, it's time again. Mm. And I thought, oh, damn, I don't want to do this. So I went down there to the same street. Um, I went into several of the stores to try to find my mom. They said, you know what? We know your mom. We know her very well, but... You know, she, we haven't seen her now in like a couple of weeks, which is highly unusual. I said, okay, thanks for the information. And I called around to the various hospitals and such. And I called down to the city hospital. It's called Parkland. That's where JFK died. And some people know it as that. So I called down to Parkland. I asked if she was there. They said, for confidentiality reasons, we can't say one way or another. But if, if it turns out uh, she is here, We'll let you know. Can't remember how long it was. Probably it could have been a few days, could have been a couple weeks. I'm not sure. But um, I got a call back and they said, we can confirm that your mom is here. She was deemed both a, a danger to both herself and to society. And we have locked her up. Charlie, I don't know if you've ever seen um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um but I went down there, and this whole scene, they opened the iron door, they let me in, and I saw her, and it looked like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It was a true, insane asylum. There were many people wandering around aimlessly. I saw my mom. She was 78 pounds. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that's an adult that's 78 pounds, but it has a, it's a very scary thing. And so... We sat down, um, and by this time, I was probably three years sober, I believe, right in that area, 
And we started to have a conversation, and she looked at the window behind her, and she said, I just want to let you know, I think about, on a consistent basis, throwing myself through that window. But obviously, they had safeguards for that thing in a place like that, uh, but she was still having suicidal thoughts. And about three-quarters of our way through our conversation, she looked at me, and she said, there's something different about you, John. Is it that God of your understanding that you talk about? And I said, I don't know, Mom, I would assume it is, but here's what I want to say to you. Whatever it was with you, Mom, is not with me anymore, and I want you to be happy and joyous and free. I don't know how you're going to get there, but if I can help you someday, hopefully I'll be able to do that. And Charlie, I could tell you as I was walking out, and I was walking to my car that day, I knew that a a piece of me had floated away and that because of that experience I was never going to be the same I didn't know what it was going to be mean uh, long term but I knew that I had done what I needed to do that day now I have to wrap up uh, a pretty long story in a succinct fashion here you know because we can only go so long on the podcast but Suffice it to say that uh, I found out that she, while she was in that place, they had been studying her. They had hooked her up to different machines on her head. They brought her in. They brought her before various uh, students and classes. They would all come in to study her uh, because it was uh, because she was unusual, um, and they were trying to diagnose her and trying to learn from her. I mean, she was almost like basically like a little lab rat. And, uh, and and I'm not. That doesn't mean anything bad about the hospital. That's just the way the world works. It's, it's how they do things. So she got out of there, and they gave her some medicine. And slowly and surely, Charlie, she started to get just a little bit better. And we started to have w- visits once every two weeks, and then once every week. And then sometimes I could see her on more of a consistent basis. You know, we just had to kind of measure it, and. Over the next eight to ten years, uh, maybe I've got the years wrong here, uh, but anyway, it was for quite some time we became close again. Mm. She still looked the same way, (laughs) uh, but she was eating more healthy. Uh, She was eccentric for sure. She still, you know, I would say, you know, Mom, this is how you look to other people. She'd say, I know it. This is uh, this is the look I'm going for. I said, you go for it, Mom, whatever you need to do. And so we became close again. And you know, Charlie, I used to go into the drugstore when it came to be Mother's Day, and I would look at all of those Mother Day's, Mother's Day cards, and absolutely zero of those cards would work. And then all of a sudden, during this period of time, Every single one of those Mother's Day cards worked. Same son, same mother, something changed. And so one day uh, in the year 2000, I got a call from her. And she said, Johnny, she used to call me Johnny. She said, listen, I'm having some uh, pains in my stomach. Can you come get me? And I went down to her apartment. I got her. We took her to the emergency room. She was there for about three days, and I would go see her every day. And uh, I was on the phone with the doctor one day talking about her medicine and about how this is a tough woman. Believe me, she was a tough lady, which is uh, hopefully something that I inherited from her. 
and um, she was in a, a tremendous amount of pain. And so I said to the doctor, you need to get her some medicine down here. She's not baking it, I promise. My wife called me on, my girlfriend at the time is my wife now, called me on the phone and she said, listen, I think I have found somebody to help your mom. And I said, um, um, and I need to back up a little bit here. I went into her room one day right after I had talked to that doctor. I put out my hand to hold her hand. She smiled real big and all of a sudden, Charlie, her eyes rolled up into the back of her head. I had never seen anything like that before. I knew something was wrong. I went, got the nurse. They came in. They had something called code blue, which I had never seen before in my life. I'd heard about it on TV and such, but all of a sudden, about 15 medical personnel swarmed into that room, and they were trying to save her. And that's when my wife uh, got a little ahead of myself, called me. She said, I think we found somebody for your mom to help her. And I said, it's too late. I'm watching her die right in front of me right now. So she passed, and they came out and they told me. And I went in that room, and I hugged her when she was passed. And I was the one who gave the eulogy uh, then in four or five days after that. And I can remember, Charlie, I felt so, so, so much grief. Grief beyond understanding that I never, I, I, I didn't even know a person could feel this kind of grief. And those who have been through this thing will know exactly what I'm talking about. But I was feeling this grief. But here's what I remember succinctly. And that is I had all these feelings going through me. But the one thing that I did not have was regret. I had told her so many times over how much I loved her, how much she meant to me. We had cleaned things up. I went in there to go clean out her apartment. She had this shoe box and she had those stack of Mother's Day cards that I had written her during sobriety and after we got close again and she had saved every last one of them. What an amazing, profound example, John, of not only the miracle that recovery produces, Right? And that the God of your understanding was allowed not only to work in you and through you and allow you to be a changed person, right? but it changed other people too. Right. Because this isn't, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. When I change, when you change and we, you know, live we we on a daily basis do our level best to carry out the will of the god of our understanding the impact on that on on those on ourselves and those around us is um uh, really limitless and i cannot i cannot um uh be any more at awe right now about the magnitude of how that affected you and the relationship with your mother, which was a direct result of your recovery. A direct result. Yeah. Amazing. 
Yeah, I believe so. Another thing that I neglected to mention is that we were both atheists and agnostic growing up. Uh, she was definitely a atheist, agnostic, whatever you want to say. And, uh, um, you know, she would talk to me about my God of understanding. She used to call herself Twig. I don't know if you know who Twiggy is. He's from England a long time ago. It was a really skinny model. Uh, so she called herself Twig. And she started to develop her own relationship with the God of her understanding and I would go over and I would visit with her and she'd say, she'd demonstrate for me her prayers. She would say, she always did it like a little, um, uh, like a little letter. She'd say, uh, dear God, this is Twig. Doing well today, love Twig. <laughs> and that's kind of her, you know, that's how she made peace with the God of her understanding. And she that developed that. That is beautiful. That, that yeah. is beautiful, John. That is beautiful. Beautiful. So let us do this. First of all, the idea that, you know, you, you, you know, when people see the change in us, right? And when you were in that mental institution and your mother as, as debilitated as she was, was able to recognize that change, right? With all of the things that were you know, going on with her in her head, in her mind, and her soul, at that moment in time, to be able to recognize that change in you, that is an absolute miracle. Yes. That is an absolute miracle. And that change, right, is the whole idea of this thing, right? That is the whole idea. And I had a, a, an old-timer who's no longer with us who would always say in every meeting, if you don't change, your sobriety date will. <laughs> That's right. And I always end my podcast with that. If you don't change, your sobriety date will. Right. So let us, uh, in the last couple of minutes, John, tell me, you know, uh, um, the uh, if you could name the single biggest spiritual truth that you've gotten out of 40-some-odd episodes now of your podcast, right? What, what can you pull out of that? The biggest spiritual truth that has come out of my podcast, is that the question? Yes. That's a tough one, Charlie. Uh, so I would say um, there's one thing in particular that uh, a good friend of mine, Dave R., said during one of the podcasts, and he said, recovery works good, but it works slow. And I didn't like that in the beginning. I didn't want anything to work slow. But, you know, age has a way of doing things, too, you know, and time has a way of slowing you down. And so now I enjoy what my friend Dave says, uh, it is just, it is a process. Uh, it's not a race. Uh, it's, it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. And my job is just to show up, like we talked about already, get involved with the process, and then let the chips fall where they may. You know, there's going to be ups and downs. Uh, and certainly, my sobriety has been full of uh, uh, challenges. Uh, it's been full of 
um, I, I still have a warehouse of issues that I deal with. Mm. But but I've heard people say it this way before, and that is, you know, in my estimation, you know, there there's a line in the seventh step, I believe, of the 12 and 12 of Alcoholics mm. Anonymous. Uh, they're quoting a verse there from the Bible, and it says, be ye perfect. Uh, and, and I don't, you know, the, the objective for me is to shoot for that bullseye every day and try to be perfect. Now I'm going to fall short. I'm going to go off to the side. Uh, but the objective for me is at least shoot for that. And I know, and I've seen this many times in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think the directive is to jump from the ground up to the moon. Some of us make it six inches. Some of us make it six feet. But the idea is just to keep on trying, even though we're going to fall short. No doubt about it. And I love the idea that recovery in and of itself is just a slow burn, right? It is a slow burn. Okay? And the, the slow burn of your story, John, you know, I, I, and I, and I got, I got to think the way our podcast audience is going to be feeling very much like I'm feeling right now, brother, which is it's going to take a while for this to unpack in my own brain, right? And, and that's a good thing because there was so much there in your story that is so relatable and so, uh, instructive and so inspiring, right? in terms of some of the gifts that came to you as a direct result of working a program of recovery and gaining a relationship with a God of your understanding. That's the hope. That's the miracle. That's what it's all about. That's what we're all looking to achieve in one way or another. We don't know. We don't get to choose how it comes to us. We don't get to choose when it comes to us. But I'll tell you what. That you take this program of action and you work it to the best of your ability on a daily basis, those things will come. They will come. We just don't know how and we just don't know when. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so Amen, how do we bro. get a hold of your podcast? I want the way out podcast to know how to get a hold of your podcast, John. <laughs> Oh, yeah, uh, it's uh, soberspeak.com, S-O-B-E-R-S-P-E-A-K.com. And uh, you go there and, you know, you can subscribe to it in several different ways. You can leave us a message if you click on the Contact Us button, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. But, uh, you know, you're doing good work, Charlie. I, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your podcast. I can tell from your spirit that you... Um, you know, you you just have good intentions, and you mean well, and you're trying to help the community out there. And I am, uh, I'm thankful that you're out there doing this, Charlie. Thanks, John. I really appreciate that, and that means a lot from a fellow uh, pot recovery podcaster. You know, my intent is to try to give you know the way out podcast audience as much really uh, useful information that they can apply in their own lives that helps them along their journey, right? And the more useful information, and that comes in the form of a story that you relate to in John, or that becomes uh, that comes in the form of a topic discussion on a particular aspect of recovery, and you get something that smacks you upside the head, that makes a difference in your life, then what I'm doing is worth it. Yeah? That's right, my friend. 
That's All right. right. John, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much again for the time. Soberspeaks.com. Soberspeak. Go there. Soberspeak, not, not plural. Soberspeak. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> .com. So if you, if, you, if you related to John and you want to reach out to him, go to Soberspeak.com and you can get in touch with him there. You can listen to the, the episodes that he's got, 40-plus episodes of Experience, Strength, and Hope there. You could also email us here at shareatwayoutcast.com if you connected with John and you can't remember any of the rest of the stuff we just said. Go to shareatwayoutcast.com, <laughs> and I will absolutely 100% make sure that I connect you with Mr. John and uh, his podcast. You're doing great things, brother. I always, always, always will support a fellow recovery podcaster. So keep doing what you're doing and be good. Vice versa. Thank you very much for having me, Charlie. Thanks, John. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will. Intro, recovery revealed, and outro music courtesy of Ben Sound Music.